brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechatsplus.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, four videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss, so become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of the revolution, let me just say today is a real treat, and I rarely do this sort of pre-show, pre-intro, intro thing anymore. But I am today, just to let you know, we did have to deviate from our normal two-hour format a bit on this one. Dr. Pollock is in the midst of several professional and personal situations that demand attention, and I feel lucky to have spent any time with him at all. But I asked if he'd come talk to me, he asked if we could make it an hour, and I said if you can meet me in the middle at an hour and a half, I can make it work without stretching things too thin, and he was kind enough to agree. So we have more of a 45-45 split rather than two hours. And it's fine by me, because I can be flexible. I can have interviews that we might not otherwise have at all by being flexible. And the things we get into today once we get past the introductory stuff is, to me, really fascinating and honestly surprising. Big thanks to our friend Engineer for bringing some pretty advanced and exotic questions to the table, because they did open up some pretty wild doors. And the subject of easy water and its behavior, as well as its role in the body and how important it is to just understand in the context of health, it's so revolutionary that we could have easily spent the time just trying to explain the 101 stuff, and I didn't want to do that. There are countless interviews with Dr. Pollock that do, and he's got several great presentations you can find online, and that is all important context. Of course, his book, The Fourth Phase of Water, is about as good as you could ask for. It's well illustrated, it's in a sort of casual textbook format, and it gives you all the data from all their experiments and everything you'd want to know about this structured water. And we first heard about Dr. Pollock's work in Engineer's Water Alchemy episode, where he pulled together some of the best paradigm-busting holistic fringe science, we should say, I guess, for lack of a better term. Maybe rejected natural science or so mind-blowing the system can't take it science, whatever you want to say. But I've been thinking about it ever since, and I see these conferences Dr. Pollock speaks at. And of course, a speaker doesn't sign off on everything the other speakers say in places like that. 
But I would just say that the spirit of Nikola Tesla and Victor Schauberger and mineral alchemists and ether physics advocates is very much alive today. Yes, overshadowed and outgunned by the big machine of economic interests and paradigm-controlling pre-approved boxes of so-called scientific inquiry, but it's there nonetheless. And I hope this serves as an inspiration to explore that world more, while its thought leaders of today are still with us. But let's do the damn thing. Buy the ticket, take the ride, and let's surf that easy wave to the promised land with the man himself, Dr. Gerald Pollack. It's the Higher Side Chats Podcast, but you can call it THC. Always talking fringe ideas, digging up conspiracies. Stuff they don't want you to know, it's the stuff we want to see. That's life here on the Higher Side. Alright, Higher Side Chatters, how are we doing out there from sunny San Diego? I'm Greg Carlwood. And as we all know, the world is awash with mysteries and damn near magical qualities that bright minds throughout history have tried to highlight, only to be pushed to the margins of their disciplines and oftentimes the margins of society itself. Nikola Tesla, Thomas Townsend, Brown, Rudolf Steiner, Wilhelm Reich, Jacques Benveniste, and Victor Schauberger, just to name a few. And it seems that upsetting the scientific apple cart has repercussions that just don't seem worth the risk. And you might ask yourself when the last time we had a radical new scientific breakthrough outside of the technological space even was. Sadly, our scientific system supplies an unfortunate soup of egos, assumptions, skepticism, tradition, financial interests, fear, indoctrination, corporate sponsorship, and a pre-approved paradigm that is simply sometimes wrong. Which brings me to today's topic, the life-giving fundamental element of water. It covers over 70% of the earth, makes up over 60% of our bodies, but there is still so much about it we don't understand. But luckily, the work of today's guest, Dr. Gerald Pollack, has definitely moved the needle, probably more so than anyone I know living today. Dr. Pollack is known for his work on the fourth phase of water, also known as EZ or structured water, where he found that H2O placed near a hydrophilic surface builds up layers of this gel-like, negatively charged structured water, better described as H3O2. As his work has progressed, it's turned the world of cell biology on its head, clarified the interaction between water and light, shown that just these two simple components can provide free energy, taught us so much about the water in our bodies, and has opened the doors for many new applications in health, energy, and beyond. You can find Dr. Pollack maintaining an active laboratory at the University of Washington in wet and wonderful Seattle, He's also the founding editor-in-chief of Water, a multidisciplinary research journal, director of the Institute of Venture Science, co-founder of Fourth Phase Inc., and the founder of the annual conference on the physics, chemistry, and biology of water. We can't forget he's also written some very impressive books like Cells, Gels, and the Engines of Life, Water and the Cell, and of course, the ever-popular Fourth Phase of Water, Beyond Solid Liquid Vapor. It is a true honor to have him here today to quench our intellectual thirst, so bend the knee, folks. The scientific activist extraordinaire and the structured water sage himself, Dr. Pollock, welcome to the higher side. Oh, thanks so much, Greg, for your ultra-flattering introduction, which surely I don't deserve. But anyway, <laughs> thank you. I'm flattered. <laughs> Uh, well, it was the least I could do. I mean, this is a real treat to have you here. Thank you so much. Your work has come up with a lot of previous guests, 
It's simple yet complex and has a whole Pandora's box of implications. And I thought maybe we could start with a little Water History 101. A big part of your book, The Fourth Phase of Water, talks about this checkered past, polywater, the water memory debacle, as well as the scientific culture that doesn't make it any easier to have these sorts of breakthroughs. I think that's all useful context for people. Can you talk to us a bit about this history for the uninitiated? Uh, yeah, sure. I'm happy to do so. So you earlier mentioned polywater and also mentioned Jacques Benrist, who was responsible for water memory. And those two issues, they're really interesting, and they really do represent the concepts that you opened with about the difficulty that people have with ideas that run counter to the mainstream view. It's highly problematic. And those two debacles, which I'll tell you about, created an atmosphere that led scientists to shy away from water because these two led to the destruction pretty much of two careers and then many people thinking, oh, if these two giants in science were destroyed that way, what about mere mortals like us? And so people were really nervous about dipping their toes into water. <laughs> and so a lot of people stayed away from it, and water became a, a non-field. It's unimaginable that a substance so critically important for life, at the center of all life, is a field that essentially didn't exist. It's beginning to change now. So let me back up and tell you about those two. The first one was the so-called polywater debacle. And it took place, it actually started in Russia, when someone came to the Moscow laboratory, Boris Deryagin. And Deryagin was considered to be the most prominent physical chemist in all of Russia. And Russia had no shortage of physical chemists. Russian science was quite advanced, but he was, you might say, the chief. People looked up to him. And someone came to his laboratory and demonstrated to him a very kind of peculiar observation that if you put water into a thin capillary tube, clean, obviously, and water that had been vaporized and condensed so it shouldn't contain any contaminants, and together they studied that water, and Deryagin began to become interested. Obviously, he was a super famous and well-recognized scientist, and he noticed that the water after it got inside that thin capillary tube, changed its properties enormously. It had a different boiling point, different freezing point. The density was different, and every property that they measure was different. And he thought that this was a kind of existence of maybe another kind of water, type of water, phase of water, whatever. During the Cold War period, this was in the 1950s, some of the papers began getting translated into English, and Western scientists were really interested in this exotic-sounding finding from a famous Russian scientist. And they then had two choices. One choice is to take it up and study it some more and see if they could even leapfrog this famous scientist and come up with more and more interesting stuff that built on his observation. And the other, since it was the Cold War time and the West was obviously in confrontation with Russia, Soviet scientists, who the West was led to believe were completely incompetent, 
which obviously wasn't true, but a good propaganda. And so some scientists said, oh, this is impossible. We're going to demonstrate that it's wrong. And so one group went ahead, and there was, in fact, a lead article in the journal Science. It was called Polywater, and it was about this particular finding. And the authors thought that this was really interesting, believed it was true. And they said, you know, this kind of water that Deryagin found, it behaves more like a polymer than a bunch of independent molecules. So in other words, the idea is that the water molecules were somehow linked together in a way, forming a polymer. And therefore, they decided to call it polywater. And that's how polywater got its name. Meanwhile, the press got hold of this, and some of the people were expressed a kind of nervousness because one idea was that since this is a polymer, if you throw it in water, the water will continue to polymerize into one big solid mass and life would be extinct. So this kind of journalism was very provocative. And I think it inspired some scientists to look into it to demonstrate that, in fact, it was really wrong. And the first one to do so, the one that made the real impact was a group, I'm sorry, I can't remember where they were from, and they repeated the same experiment, and they found out that the so-called pure water was not really pure, that when it was in the capillary tube, it would leach some of the silica. In other words, the glass is somewhat soluble, and some of those molecules were found inside the water, and they wrote a paper saying this is all nonsense because the water that was considered to be pure water was not pure. It had contaminants from the glass itself. So that was devastating for Deryagin because a lot of people, again, thinking that Russian science is not to be paid serious attention to, and therefore they were relieved to find that this is all nonsense, fortifying their view that the Russians don't know what they're doing. And then what really put the nails in the coffin of polywater was a group, I can't remember, I think it was from Australia, they put some salt in the water. And after they put salt in the water, they found that the properties, or some of the properties that Deryagin had found and put into his papers were probably due to salt. And he suggested, or they suggested, that the Russians were doing the experiments in the summertime and they were probably sweating in the water. <laughs> of course, this is preposterous when you think about the number one physical chemist in all of Russia. But, you know, the word got around and finally, polywater was dead. Not only dead, but it became a scientific joke, so to speak. And what happened a few years after that was Deryagin himself wrote a paper essentially retracting everything. And so polywater was seemingly dead forever. However, I met two people who worked very closely with Deryagin in one of my trips to Russia. One of them was his last postdoc. And the other one was a guy who's head of a sister institute right near the one that Deryagin ran in a town called Pushino, which is a science city. These guys were both directors of different institutes, high-level guys. And, and my friend had coffee, vodka, whatever with him practically every evening, and they would discuss science. And they both independently told me the same story, that Deryagin was pressed by the Soviet government into admitting that he made an error because 
By putting the blame on him, the blame was therefore shifted from the Soviet government. They were very sensitive about these kinds of issues, shifted from the government to this one scientist, and they were relieved of all so-called responsibility. So he was in the hot spot, and I guess he didn't have too much choice because his choice was either to write that retractive paper or probably find himself somewhere in Siberia. He knew quite well about the situation. So that was the first. And of course, many scientists, not knowing what I just relayed to you, thinking that a scientist of such stature could make such a blunder, led them to kind of shy away from doing any kind of research into water. That attitude held for 10, 15 years or something like that. And then along came Jacques Benveniste. And you know about him, but I, I don't know how much your listeners know about Jacques Benveniste. To some, he's a hero. To others, he's a villain. Mm-hmm. And Jacques at one time was absolutely a hero in the area of immunology. He became very famous in France after doing a stint, I think in San Diego for a while, and became famous for some techniques, immunological techniques that he developed. And he came back to France and he had a laboratory of something like 50 people, very major scientists who was connected with so many other important people in France and throughout the world. And along came some guy who I believe was a homeopath and wanted to demonstrate something to him in the lab. So Jacques had been working with certain cells that secrete histamine. And if he would expose those cells to a solution containing antibodies, the cells would secrete. And this guy came along with a background in homeopathy. He said, oh, you know, I can take your antibodies and instead of using them as you use them, concentrated, I can dilute them and dilute them and dilute them until effectively there are no antibodies left, only the water that held the antibodies, and I can get the same response. And Jacques' response was, I don't believe it. However, being an open-minded guy, he said, well, I've got this big laboratory, there's a space in the corner, why don't you take that space and show us your results? And the guy proceeded to do these serial dilutions with shaking in between, the same as essentially as the homeopaths do, diluting and diluting and diluting to the point where essentially only water remained, the water that had been exposed to the antibodies. And they did the experiment and voila, it worked. He got the same result and Jacques was flabbergasted by this and they continued to do experiments pretty much the same as what happened to Deryagin, who became entranced by the guy who came to his laboratory to demonstrate an experiment. So having obtained a positive result, he thought, well, where should I publish? And the obvious answer was, this is so important that we're going to publish in Nature, which still is, I guess, Nature and Science being the preeminent scientific journals. So he sent in a manuscript, and what came back from the editor, John Maddox, actually Sir John Maddox, was a kind of blistering letter saying, we're not even going to review this because if you're right, everybody else is wrong, and I refuse to believe that everybody else is wrong. Therefore, we won't send it to the reviewers, even for their consideration. So being an astute guy, Jacques Benvenis thought about it and decided, well, instead of fighting with the editor, the best thing to do 
is to ask a bunch of colleagues to repeat his protocols exactly and see what results they get. Jacques obviously had friends around the world and recruited them, and it turned out that by repeating precisely the same protocols, they got the same result. And they sent it again to Nature with multiple authors. And they said in their paper that they couldn't do it every time, but the number of times they could get the positive result was easily highly statistically significant, despite an occasional failure, which they didn't understand, but it was real. So what came back is much the same response. It doesn't matter how many people repeat it, it can't be. And uh, obviously, this is not the sort of thing that endears scientists to the editors of scientific journals. It's just incredible to receive a response like that. And by the way, the stories I'm telling you are in books and journals and and such, and there's more detail there, but it's just so interesting. So finally, there was a lot of push from Paris. There are quite a few homeopaths, and they recognized Jacques Benveniste as being their hero because he demonstrated that what they do on an everyday basis, these dilutions to produce homeopathy, that he demonstrated, this famous scientist, demonstrated that it actually works. And they're justified in the kinds of things that they do. So the feedback got back to London, the headquarters of nature, and they were under a lot of pressure to do something because they certainly didn't want the reputation of being arbitrary and rejecting a paper simply because it didn't agree with the status quo. So uh, they made a compromise. And when I visited the late Shock Benveniste, he showed me, he said, I got a call right on that telephone right there from John Maddox. And he said, I'll make a deal with you. So what's the deal? The deal was, I'll publish your paper in the next week's issue of Nature. However, I'll do it only under the condition that you allow a committee of peers, scientific peers, to come to Paris from wherever and look over your shoulder and see what you're doing and then report back to the readers of Nature. So uh, Jacques agreed. I guess you'd agree and I'd agree. We sincerely have some findings and we don't mind somebody coming and watching us doing the experiment or doing it themselves. So he agreed several peers would be coming to his laboratory. A few weeks later, they came. So who was on the committee of peers? The first was the editor himself, who had an axe to grind. The second was the amazing Randy, a magician of the highest order, who is famous for debunking the tricks of other magicians. It was obvious they were thinking of some kind of trick or some kind of cheating, and they brought him along because he's expert at finding out what the tricks are. And the third one was a guy named Walter Stewart. He came from the National Institutes of Health, and they have a group there that investigates fraud in science, and he was in that group. So by the makeup of the committee, this was not exactly a committee of peers, but a commando committee to figure out what kind of trick or what kind of fraud was being perpetrated. And so they came to Paris, and the first meeting, or the first demonstration, I I should say, the technician who consistently did the experiments did the experiments again and, and right in front of their eyes, and it worked just exactly as they had reported, positive results. The second day, the same technician did the experiment, and there was a kind of little trick played by the committee. They actually, they themselves 
coded each one of the vials and only they knew how to decode. And when they finally decoded, it still worked. And the third day, Walter Stewart from the fraud department at Scientific Division or something of Scientific Integrity, what it's called. And this guy did the dilutions. And when he did the dilutions, they didn't get the expected result. And so they huddled in their hotel and they decided that, well, it's obvious since the French, when they do it, they got the so-called correct result. But when it was done by one of the visitors, they got the opposite result. And so despite N equals one, they decided that it must be some kind of fraud, uh, some kind of trick, which they couldn't find out, by the way, kind of surprising because this is James Randi, the amazing Randi, is probably world's leading expert on debunking the tricks of other magicians who are pre-deft at doing what they're doing. And he was unable to figure out what was going on with Ben Venis. So they wrote a paper in Nature and they said, well, this whole thing is a water memory, which is what they refer to it as because the water that was diluted seemed to have memory of the molecules with which it had been in contact before the dilution. So the title was something like Water Memory is a Delusion. In other words, it's a magic trick. And his career went south. It went so far south that he couldn't get any more support. His lab essentially closed down at the height of his career. And he became a scientific joke. The joke runs something like, you're having trouble with memory? Drink some of Benveniste's water. <laughs> it will come back. Mm, mm. So anyway, those two, the polywater and water memory, had uh, devastating effects on water research because although water research was a, a rather prominent field before the 1950s, as you could imagine, it is quite natural that it should be, it kind of vanished from the field with a few exceptions for several decades. And so there was almost no continuity in the field. And some of us crazy people found the subject to be of interest. In my own particular case, it was following a scientist who is now 100 years old this very year, Gilbert Ling. For me, starting my career in the field of muscle contraction with nobody coming to the realization that water being two-thirds of muscle, all the theories ignore water, and the theories are based on proteins alone and how they interact to produce force and motion, presuming that the water doesn't exist. It's like proteins in a vacuum. <laughs> and so I, being in the field and not being happy with the current theory of muscle contraction because it didn't fit the evidence and looking around for alternatives, the idea that water might play some role became potentially really interesting. So that's how I got into the area of water. But I think I'm giving a monologue and mm -hmm. I need to stop and ask you for follow-up questions. <laughs> no worries, no worries. That's an excellent breakdown. Clearly, people have had hunches about water and there being some properties worth exploring. And the result hasn't been great for them when they've taken a peek. But of course, that brings us up to kind of your work and the fourth phase of water. And so the three phases of water that we learn about in school are pretty easy to see in everyday life. Are there places where people can look to see this negatively charged gel-like fourth phase to maybe help their understanding of it? How do you break people in? How do you break people in? <laughs> it's a good question, and I'm tempted to respond 
by saying that it's possible to take that water, which is kind of like a liquid crystal. It's not quite as solid and not quite a liquid. It's like a gel. And we're now able to actually repeat what an Italian group has done, and that is make a solid of it. Hmm. You can take that water, extract it, dehydrate it by some standard technique, and what you get out is solid, easy water. And you can see it, you can touch it, you can play with it, you can do what you want. So it is tangible. Now, that's not the easiest way to deal because you need the right equipment and it's rather demanding to do those experiments. But that is a, you might say, a glib answer. You can Mm -hmm. touch it, feel it, look at it. It looks like a kind of thread, a kind of golden brown color that winds itself around. And we're beginning to explore the properties of it to see if it has the same properties as the original that exists more naturally. So how do you introduce this to a person who knows nothing about it? And one thing I could say is that your body is filled with it. So we all learn that our body is two-thirds water. Actually, it's not. It's the fraction, the percent, diminishes with age. So newborn might be 80%, 85% water by volume. The embryo, probably even higher. And as we get long in the tooth, the volume percent of water tends to diminish. And when you get to be my age, it's probably down to 70% or even 65% or something like that. So we keep getting progressively dehydrated. But most of the water that's in our body is not ordinary H2O liquid water. It's the fourth phase of water. How do we know that? Well, there are many reasons. (laughs) I guess I don't want to go into all of the different reasons because it takes too long. But let me just summarize by saying anyone who's gone through high school biology who has played with cells, giant cells or tissues and inadvertently cut open one of them. So if it's a liquid, you expect it to pour out. Just like a balloon that's filled with water, you puncture it and all the water comes out. But the water doesn't come out of the cell. A little bit may leak out, but The rest of the water inside the cell remains as it was. So it's not a liquid, and certainly it's not a solid, because you can compress the cell. So it's somewhere in between, and other evidence points to the fact that it's actually fourth-phase water. It makes a lot of sense, because this water forms next to surfaces, particularly hydrophilic or water-loving surfaces. That is, the kinds of surfaces, if you can imagine, like take your desk and drop a droplet of water on your desk. If the water spreads out, then it's hydrophilic or water-loving. If it beads up like Teflon, then it's hydrophobic. And this phenomenon doesn't occur next to hydrophobic surfaces, only next to hydrophilic. Not everyone, but most of them. And your cell is just totally packed with hydrophilic surfaces. All of the proteins and the other macromolecules that fill your cell, the solids are roughly 70% protein. There are nucleic acids and other solids. The surfaces of these that abut the water, they're essentially all, except for small pockets, hydrophilic or charged surfaces, That just the kind of surfaces that organize the water into this fourth phase. So that's one point of recognition that this fourth phase is not merely laboratory phenomenon or peculiarity. It fills your body and also fills the body of all animals and plants as well. I'm not suggesting there's no H2O in any one of them. There is, 
but it's mostly easy or fourth phase water. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes. Does that's, that help? It definitely helps. I think that's a great primer. Of course, I don't want to get too fundamental because then we'll never get to the advanced stuff, but it is good for context though. And your studies, of course, as you said, show that Water in our cells is not simple H2O, but rather this easy water. And also that simple sunlight can increase the easy zone or the layers of easy water between the bulk water and that hydrophilic surface. And infrared and ultraviolet light in particular are helpful in growing this easy zone or the layers of it, which is why it's good for us to get out in the sun and why infrared saunas have such health benefits. But Can you elaborate on this relationship between easy water and sunlight in general? Sure. Happy to do that. It's really important because, first of all, I just want to straighten out something that, yeah, IR, infrared, and ultraviolet definitely have effects, but the effects are different. And in the case of ultraviolet, it actually, we found experimentally, it doesn't expand the exclusion zone, but we have preliminary, not conclusive evidence that when you add ultraviolet light, it gets absorbed by the fourth phase, and we think it increases the negative charge contained in the fourth phase or in the easy, as you say, the two equivalent. So I just wanted to straighten out, but let me go back to light, effective light. So the first thing to mention is what we're talking about is very similar to the first step in photosynthesis. You know, in the first step of photosynthesis, light is absorbed. And the light splits the water, step one, into H plus and OH minus. This is well known to be the first step in photosynthesis. It's also what we've observed. And that's the start of the action with light. So I just want to make a point before going on that what we've observed in water is very similar to what people know exists in photosynthesis, where light breaks the water into negative and positive components. So it's not really so exotic. It's almost predictable because plants are mostly water. So if what happens is known to happen in plants also happens in water that we've seen with other hydrophilic, next to other hydrophilic surfaces instead of, say, chlorophyll in plants, then it's reassuring that there's precedent for it. Okay, so we couldn't figure out at first where the energy came from to build this zone. So the zone is negatively charged, typically, negatively charged, with an equal positive charge beyond the zone of the fourth phase or the EZ. So it's like a battery. You have negative, and the negative is built from those OH minus units that can build up the form. It actually forms a hexagonal structure, all those OH minuses linking together in some way, maybe beyond the scope of the conversation because I need to show some diagrams, but it's a battery that forms. And batteries have energy, but you can't create a battery from nothing. You need to put in energy, just like charging your cell phone battery. You plug it in and then you can use the battery again. So the principle applies to everything. And in order to achieve this kind of separation of charge or battery-like effect, you need energy. But we can figure out where on earth the energy came from. It took us a while. And also, the EZ is ordered. This is an ordered phase. It's the best we understand. It's a stack of hexagonal sheets that form adjacent to the hydrophilic surface, one sheet built upon another. So this is highly ordered. If you start from chaos, like 
ordinary H2O with molecules randomly disposed and bouncing around a huge number of times every second, there's not much order. So if you go from disorder to order, you also need to put in energy. It's a fundamental thermodynamic principle that if you want to create order out of chaos, you need to put energy. So both that and the battery, recharging the battery, both of them require energy. So where on earth does the energy come from? So we were scratching our heads for two or three years because it had to come from somewhere, but we couldn't figure it out. Maybe because of my dense brain or something like that. But one day, a student who was doing what he was not supposed to do actually led to our figuring it out. And what he did was he had an experiment where he had some hydrophilic material, I think it was naphion, which we often use, but not always, naphion, sitting in water. And next to the naphion, we had an exclusion zone, EZ, or fourth phase water. And beyond that, we had little particle spheres, microspheres that are excluded from this liquid crystalline EZ area. And so we could easily identify the EZ as being the area between the hydrophilic surface and where the microspheres were. So we could watch it in the microscope. So the student that was doing the experiment and he found a gooseneck lamp sitting next to him and picked up the gooseneck lamp and shined it on the chamber and called me over and said, hey, take a look. And I could see that the region of the chamber that was illuminated with that lamp was much bigger than other regions of the EZ. And the longer he held the lamp there, the more it would grow. And when he took the lamp away, it receded back to its original size. So from his, quote, experiment, unquote, we got the idea, well, you know, if photons, light, was important in expanding the EZ, maybe it's actually photons that are responsible for even the original buildup of the EZ. And we tested this using a formal experimental protocol, and we published the results, and we looked at different wavelengths to see which ones are the most effective in doing this. So we started with the ultraviolet, the shortest wavelengths, and we found little or no expansion of the EZ. And as the wavelengths moved to the longer ones into the visible range, starting with violet and blue and green and so on, we could see that the longer the wavelength, the larger the effect. But when we got to the very longest ones into the infrared, we saw a huge effect, much, much larger by an order or even almost two orders of magnitude than any visible wavelength, especially at the wavelength of 3.0 micrometers. That had a huge effect on expanding the exclusion zone. And if we left that very feeble light that came from the LED that we used, if we let it stay on, we could get increases up to 10 times the size. So the effect is absolutely huge with really small, low intensity of light. So it became clear that, yeah, <laughs> there is energy, and the energy is natural. It comes from the environment. Or you can add yourself. You can turn on a UV, an IR infrared lamp and watch the exclusion zone grow. Or you could just do nothing. There's plenty of infrared energy out there, although most people including myself, I must admit, early on, don't realize where it comes from. Actually, 
if you put the bagel in the toaster and uh, look inside the toaster, you see the coils glowing bright orange and it's hot. And you say, oh, yeah, well, it's generating heat and heat is pretty much the same as infrared light or infrared energy. So it's generating infrared. The same with the oven, electric oven. And that's true. But it's also true that infrared energy is coming from everywhere. So if you're sitting in a room and you darken the room, turn off all the lights and the shades are closed, curtains drawn, whatever, it's dark in there. You can't see anything. And if you take out your cell phone and try to photograph it, you'll get nothing. But if you take out a camera that has an infrared sensor instead of a visible light sensor, just replace it. And there are lots of infrared cameras out there. You'll get a beautiful image of everything hmm. at night, for example, or in a darkened room because everything is generating infrared energy. If you capture that energy, you get an image. The military, of course, uses it for looking at images at night. And it can be particularly useful. Astronomers use it as well. So it's all over, which means it's free energy, which means it's unlike what you read about in a chemistry textbook about free energy. This is literally free. It's free for the taking. It costs you not even a nickel. And you get it. And because this energy is always around, you need to go to absolute zero to get rid of it, which is not highly practical. It's there. And because the energy is there to build easy water, you always have easy water. Whenever you have the correct conditions, and that is the right hydrophilic surface and ordinary water, you have infrared energy, and the infrared will build the EZ, which means you always have EZ water. Mm. And the funny thing is finding out that light is the driver. You know, it took us at least a couple of years to scratch our heads and figure out and being unable until that student found it. So I do some teaching here at University of Washington, and I had a class, and I was explaining to the class something about our findings. And instead of telling them the energy source, I asked the question, can anybody figure out where the energy might come from? And a student sitting in the class raised his hand rather tentatively, and he said, he was almost embarrassed to offer his suggestion, he said, light? I grabbed that student quickly and got him to work in our laboratory. He uh, could figure it out right away. It took us two years. So there you go. Wow, wow. <laughs> anyway. It's light, and that's how we came to understand. And, of course, it has a lot of implications, uh, mm -hmm. not just that the situation is similar to the first step of photosynthesis, but a lot of applications, especially for health. Absolutely. That's such an impressive discovery. And you have shown that when you have this water where the charge is separated, you can actually use that energy to power a clock or light a light bulb. To read a little from your book, you write, we have shown that easy batteries can supply charges and that they can store charges for substantial periods of time. Further, they can deliver a significant fraction of that charge. That charge can provide energy for driving diverse processes ranging from chemical reactions to hydraulic flows. Indeed, the easy battery could be a versatile supplier for much of nature's energy. Well, I'm no scientist, but that sounds pretty exciting. How far can you take this? Could this ever be a real factor in society's energy needs, or could it power an engine or something like that? Well, it struck us that the answer was yes. And one of my students, who was actually working on that project and demonstrated, it was a PhD thesis, that you can actually light a light bulb 
with that energy, a small light bulb. So he demonstrated possibility. He didn't demonstrate practicality because demonstrate practicality, you need a lot of energy. Otherwise, you know, it's just a laboratory phenomenon. And he convinced me that we should form a company to develop this. And we did. And it was not my idea, but I think it was his idea. Let's call it Fourth Phase Incorporated. We did. And we now have a company that's set up and pursuing several of the findings in our laboratory to see if they can serve to benefit the world. That's one of them. But we put it on the back burner because at first we thought filtration was more critical. You know, our waters are just filled with all kinds of trash and chemicals and pharmaceuticals and it's becoming a problem so serious that it's having a really major impact on people's health and incidents of chronic illnesses are increasing. So you can take water and you can actually put it through a process called reverse osmosis to get rid of pretty much all the junk. But the cost of doing that, it's highly energy intensive. And while it's possible to do something like that in Saudi Arabia, which in fact is what they do to get essentially all their water because they have no other resources. But apart from them, it's not so feasible for the rest of the world because it's so expensive to do it. You can take salt water and get drinking water out of this process. So we know that since the exclusion zone, by definition, it excludes, it excludes essentially all or almost all of these pharmaceuticals and bacteria and viruses, and the only energy that's required is the energy of the sun. You just capture the easy water, and you can get energy. And the company has been working on this, and we're still working on it. Also, in the back burner, we're limited basically by resources. We're looking for uh, more investment. There's such a bright future for this, but in order to do it, to hire the people to make it happen, you need the right personnel. So we have some, we need more and we need more investment because there's so much that has come out of our lab that can be exploited for societal use, to the benefit of society. Also drinking water, the water that contains EZ in it as a you know reasonable fraction of the drinking water also has health benefits because this EZ water is essential for cell function. And we're working on developing that, but We've learned that going from a laboratory demonstration to building the technology is a giant step. It's uh, mm-hmm. it's not so simple to do it, to make something that's actually practical for people to use. So we're working hard on all of these and just going rounding back to your question about practical use. Yes, we do think so, but we've been limited in our ability to work on and develop these outcomes. Mm-hmm. We're looking hard for investment. We have a Really wonderful board, which includes, I'm not sure if you know Robert Kennedy Jr., who's (laughs) done so much for various health issues, and he's on our board, and several other people, including our distinguished CEO and company, people who know their way around, but we're now trying to build our investment to make some of these things happen. We're really excited about it. Mm. So the answer is yes. Uh, I'm sorry, I gave a long answer to a short question, practicality. We think so, and we're working on it. Yes, indeed. And well, here's an interesting one. So you found out that water in a hydrophilic tube can kind of flow on its own. The negative charge pushes it along without any kind of pump, really. Maybe this is the mechanism behind blood flow in the body, more so than the heart being the sole pump. 
But that knowledge alone could be used to do something like maybe upgrade our entire plumbing infrastructure. I guess in a perfect world, we would have hydrophilic vortexing pipes that can absorb sunlight above the ground as they flow. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure there's huge infrastructural possibilities there. That's really creative. You touched on so many issues. Let me first just respond in a practical way to your hypothesis about using it in major pipes to promote flow. I think it won't be practical for that, although I might actually be wrong, because the driving phenomenon starts at the hydrophilic surface. And if you have a narrow tube, the hydrophilic surface is a major fraction of the opening in the tube of the lumen. It might be 10, 20% of the diameter. And it works beautifully in situations like that if the tube material is hydrophilic. If you have a giant tube, like some of the underground tubes that take water from some glacial melt, for example, as a conduit to the city, these are huge tubes. And because their diameters are really large, the EZ is a very small fraction. The EZ that forms just inside the tube material is a very small fraction of the tube diameter, and it won't work so effectively. I'm not suggesting that it's impossible, but I'm suggesting that it may not be practical in the manner that you suggested. If you, on the other hand, put a lot of small tubes in parallel, yes, then it can work, and it can work effectively. But returning to the heart, just before this interview, I was speaking to my student who's been working on that project, and we're putting together a couple of papers just before his PhD, which he's about to receive. And we did indeed find that in the cardiovascular system, this mechanism, this slow mechanism that you alluded to is actually working, probably at the level of the capillaries. And so you don't actually need the heart to get slow. Let me explain. There have been experiments, not only my student doing it, but people, maybe four or five different investigators over the last half century have published papers demonstrating that if the heart is either blocked or stopped for some reason, the heart is not functioning, the blood flow doesn't go to zero. Something else is involved in persisting flow. And it doesn't flow at the same rate by any means. It's much slower, but it keeps going. And in the case of my student studying the flow in the chick embryo, when the heart is stopped by injecting potassium chloride, the flow continues. He demonstrated the same as what other people demonstrated. It keeps going. It's kind of surprised <laughs> because we expect the heart stops, you're dead, and there's no flow. But it's not true. The flow persists for, say, an hour in his case or more than an hour. And as I said, it's reported in other labs, but nobody pays attention because it seems too exotic to be true. But we have clear evidence that it's true. So there's got to be some mechanism that drives it. And when we first found this phenomenon of flow in tubes, let me just explain how we found it. This was also a kind of student who was maybe being slightly disobedient. And, uh, well, maybe that's not the right word. His eyes were open. <laughs> so he had an experiment where he was using the same material that I mentioned. It's called Nafion, and it builds very nice exclusion zones next to it. And we found that Nafion comes not only in the sheets that we had used, but also as tubes. So it's like a straw, and the material is made of Nafion. And his job was to look in the microscope and see if he put this tube in water that contained microspheres, 
curiosity detect an EZ, and we expected an EZ as an annular region just inside the tube, inside the wall of the tube, and just outside the wall of the tube, running along the length. And he could confirm that, but he found something else. I distinctly will remember that day because it's unforgettable to me because of the magnitude of his accidental discovery. So I'm sitting in my office, same office from which I'm speaking right now. I had a visitor. I can't remember who the visitor was, but obviously it must have been a kind of non-impacting visitor. Otherwise, I might have remembered. And I was sitting and talking, and the student comes barging in. And usually the students don't do that. They have a, a modicum of politeness, hmm. <laughs> you know, especially if I'm sitting with somebody else. I'll poke their head in or something. But he came in. And practically in the middle of a sentence, I was talking to the guy. He said, you know, I just discovered something, and I thought it's important enough for me to tell you. So he goes on to tell me, he said, you know, the tube is sitting horizontally at the bottom of the chamber, and he's looking inside the tube with a lens of a microscope, and he said, you know, there's flow inside the tube, and the flow just keeps going. It won't stop. And I thought this might be important. I thought if this is really true, and we checked it out, the next few days, and it was clearly true. If this is true, it's really important because, see, usually, in order to have flow inside a tube, you need pressure. Typically, for example, your heart is developing a pressure which pushes the blood through the tube, through your large arteries and such. But he found in these narrow tubes, he said the flow, there's no pressure gradient, no difference of pressure, no high pressure at one end and low pressure at the other, as you'd find in the cardiovascular system. But the tube is just lying there horizontally, and he's looking with the microscope, and the flow just continues. We actually, we could have it going for up to a day and a half before it slowed down for reasons that we actually understand. But I thought, if it's really true, since you need energy to drive flow, and we know that the water is absorbing energy from the environment, as I pointed out a few moments ago, this could be confirming evidence that this energy that's coming and really does come and really does get absorbed and is actually put to use in some way because it's driving flow. So I was really excited about this finding. And then, then I went to Russia to see a colleague of mine after we had found this and studied it. And we found that, again, light was the energy that was driving this because we had more light. We got faster flow. So I went to visit my friend Vladimir Vyakov at Moscow University. And as I went to his lab, the first thing, he's an old friend of mine, first thing is, I want you to meet my colleague in the next laboratory. And the colleague in the next laboratory came over, sat down with his assistant, and they started talking to me. Unfortunately, I couldn't understand the Russian, but it was translated by my friend. And what they were telling me is that there's a big problem in the cardiovascular system. And I'm thinking, what kind of big problem can there be? I did my PhD thesis simulating the dynamics of flow and pressure in the cardiovascular system, and quite arrogantly, I thought we had all the answers until I spoke to him at, at greater length, and he convinced me of the serious problem within 15 minutes. So what's the problem? The problem is that the capillaries, the smallest capillaries in healthy young adults, the diameter is three to four micrometers, and the red blood cells that need to pass through are six or seven micrometers. So it's kind of like stuffing a basketball through a narrow hoop. You know, you, 
you got to push it through or 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 as I like to say sometimes it's like stuffing up your toilet and in order to drive the stuff through to clear your toilet bowl you need to get a plunger and you need to apply a lot of energy to kind of push and push and push and finally it clears the situation is pretty much the same in the capillary and it looks like mother nature screwed up because no engineer would do such a thing as to have stuff that's twice the diameter of the tube it just simply doesn't work and he said we calculated how much energy is required i don't know if his calculation was right or not but he came up with something like if the heart were fully responsible for doing all this pushing of the blood through the small capillaries the heart would need to develop something like one million times the pressure that it develops and even if he's off by a factor of 10 or 100, it's still a very, very major problem that you could see intuitively is an issue. And then actually, if you watch the flow through the capillaries, we've done that, you don't see any pulsatility. It looks like the flow in the capillaries is smooth and steady. It doesn't go, you know, push, 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 like to the rhythm of the heart. So it seems disconnected. And so he said there's got to be something else that some other energy is driving the flow. And of course, immediately, despite my jet lag, <laughs> I could think, oh, you know, we just saw in the laboratory that you could get flow through tubes. And the energy that's required is energy from the environment, from light, especially infrared energy. And I'm thinking, maybe this applies. And so I spoke to my student who still didn't have a project. And I explained to him that this is a possibility that maybe this flow phenomenon that we saw in the laboratory could be driving the flow in capillaries and it's dependent on infrared energy and inside the body there's lots of infrared energy coming from all the metabolic heat develops or you can add some from outside too either way and that could be put to use for driving it so he admits to me three years later that he thought my idea was preposterous but he accepted it anyway and after he began doing experiments he's now absolutely convinced by his evidence that this is true. So the bottom line is that for all of us, if his evidence holds up, and I believe it should because it seems pretty clear that the heart is not the only supplier of energy to push the blood through the system. There's another one, an auxiliary, and that is in the small vessels, perhaps the capillaries or maybe arterioles or somewhere along the line. There's another mechanism, and that mechanism is the one that's based on easy water. And if you wish, I can tell you in about two or three minutes. I just don't want to. I know you have a lot of other questions. <laughs> we know pretty much how it works. So it's in the book, fourth phase book, which, as you say, has gotten pretty popular. Yes, it has, and rightfully so. I really do love it all, but I would like to spend the last bit of time we have together trying to get beyond what's in the book, if you don't mind. But for the main event here, I think we can call that a wrap. You've been really generous with your time, and thank you so much. Yeah, thank you very much for, for the interesting questions. I really appreciate that. <laughs> well, the least I could do is have some questions for you, but it was quite fun. Definitely an honor and a pleasure. I know you got to go. I will make sure to tell the people about your books and website, remind them of all that good stuff. Keep doing the great work you're doing, and have a good one. Okay, my pleasure, Greg. Okay, take care. Bye. Rock me like a hurricane, Hireside Cheddars. How was that? Dr. Gerald Pollack, the water wizard himself. 
Again, I'm sorry it was a little short, but that plus show where the respectable, incredible Dr. Pollock goes on about his other interests in weird science, to me, is pretty amazing. He's just such a nice, genuine guy. I definitely wanted to be respectful of his personal obligations and not take up more time than I agreed to. So I cut him loose and said, look, I can tell the people that they should check out more on your website. I can tell them that the fourth phase of water is the book they should pick up to get started. And that's what I'm doing now. Please do support Dr. Pollock, promote him, study his work, and let him know that you liked hearing from him and you want to hear more on THC in particular, because I really pestered him for this, and I do want him to know that his time was well spent, his message received, and that it was an opportunity as much as it was a granted courtesy to the guy who wouldn't stop emailing. As for the show itself, I definitely didn't want to retread too much ground from Dr. Pollock's other interviews, or why am I even bothering the man? So I thought I would just hit two of those starter questions. The first being what chapters in the history of water science are worth telling as a way of setting the stage for A, how there could really be so many fundamental aspects of water that we haven't fully explored yet, and B, how the scientific quarantine, either imposed by funding or self-imposed by established bias, which I think is subconsciously encouraged, but regardless, how that interferes as well. You know I like exploring that with things like energy and transportation and medicine. It's important to know the road you're on, and you have to open people up to there even being more to know before you hit them with the paradigm-changing stuff. And then the other intro question was, how do we summarize this work and what easy water even is for people who don't know? You gotta try. But with those two questions, we were a third done, and I had a minor panic attack. But luckily for at least the larger THC audience, we talked about a lot of this stuff with Dr. Stephen Hussey in the last episode, especially on the health side. So I went straight to the energy side, because so many of Dr. Pollock's other interviews are dominated by the health side, and I get it. We want to know what we can do to increase the magic elixir of the EZ gods. And yes, easy water is key to understanding the infrared and juice cleanse healing modalities, homeopathy as well. It revolutionizes the concept of the heart and blood flow. It's no small thing. And I've heard people ask him about the effects of fluoride, glyphosate, sugar, and heavy metals on structured water or the ratio of easy water in our bodies. And surprise, surprise, it's not good. We already know these things aren't great for us, so let's talk about water engines rather than a new understanding of why poison in the food supply might be a problem. <laughs> but I do find it all to be pretty revolutionary and great evidence that supports the elegance and importance of our natural holistic systems over the cold, mechanical, AI-controlled, cookie-cutter life of mundane numbness and I'm sorry the Plus Show is so juicy and so private. Obviously, that's how we do the show. And the nature of a conversation is that it gets deeper towards the end, not the beginning. But in the Plus Show, Dr. Pollock talked about the Earth's net negative charge and how we might use that. And primarily, Shamanjaneer's deep questions on cavitation, water transmutation, and the work of Mark LeClaire 
and also flight, electrostatic, and rotation. And I think you know what we're getting at there. But yeah, sign up for THC Plus if you want to get the full show. Not just this episode, but every episode. We don't do sponsors or networks or any of that. It's just me and you, baby. But just to touch on a few things I've heard Dr. Pollock bring up in other interviews that are interesting, I've heard him talk about the Hunza people. They live in a fairly isolated area of Pakistan in the Himalayas. But the stories are that they can easily live to be 120, sometimes 150. They don't get cancer. Women can get pregnant in their 60s, 70s, 80s, some even say 90s. They have a well-established shamanic tradition, as a side note, but they are also living off glacier water and apricots, largely. I've also read that they drink this water that is so high in mineral content, it's almost thick. Well, gel-like is a structured water descriptor, and I'm sure this is a huge piece of their longevity-increasing lifestyle. People might also know Dave Asprey from Bulletproof Coffee. I interviewed him here way back in the day, but he is a big Dr. Pollock fan as well. And we know that bubbles increase easy because around each one is an easy layer. And that becomes another reason why this Bulletproof Coffee thing seems to increase health. Because blending it with butter is a part of that process. Homeopathy, a big part of that process, is shaking it and creating bubbles. Something is up here. How much of our sick society and crippled immune systems could be healed with this information? Of course, validation from the system is only so valuable, but get this man a Nobel Prize. I don't know, but I'd find myself just staring at a glass of water now, holding my drink up into the sun's rays, even for just a minute. It's probably psychological, but we know the power of the mind. But just as the keto diet centers around getting your body to process fats as energy instead of carbs and sugar, Dr. Pollock has also talked about this breatharian movement. Nassim Haramine, as popular as he is, claims that he's gone years without eating. And maybe this structured water context can explain that. The documentary on it is called Eat the Sun, well, Dr. Pollock has explained this system as a sort of human photosynthesis. And I'm pretty open to it now that a person can sustain themselves on high, easy water content in their bodies and sunlight. I don't want to live like that, though. I'm still an American, damn it. But guys like Dr. Pollock are the ones that bridge the gap between academia and the alternative. He mentioned Dean Radin in The Plus Show. Dean Radin's latest book is titled Magic is Real. I mean, we are at the gates of the dominant of wider inclusion, and it feels fine. Big thanks to both Dr. Radin and Dr. Pollock and all of these one-foot-in, one-foot-out folks who are willing to go full weirdo with someone like me on a show called The Higher Side Chats. It's not good for anyone's image, and they're comfortable and confident enough to take the chance. So I try really hard to make sure they leave feeling just as comfortable and confident. But I hope you liked it, and I hope you pencil some of this stuff in on your reality map. Get yourself a copy of The Fourth Phase of Water. Give it to your teachers. Give it to your kids. 
Alternative thinkers love to promote their ideas, and with shows like this, I try to give you better data, better information, stuff that can actually push us forward more than an angry, shaking fist ever will. So go to pollocklab.org. Maybe I'll see you at the conference in Germany next year. Or if you want to donate any kind of money to research, I would avoid the bottomless pits that have formed under all the various conditions we can get from our backwards lifestyles, and I'd put a few bucks into something like Dr. Pollock's Institute for Venture Science. Let me just read its mission statement from his website. The Institute of Venture Science was founded in 2013, and Gerald Pollock is the founding executive director. The IVS funds scientific inquiries into high-risk, high-reward theses that challenge conventional thinking. By virtue of their break with ideas that may have become more traditional than forward-looking concepts, these fresh challenges may lead to fundamental breakthroughs in understanding. The IVS identifies the most promising ideas that challenge prevailing paradigms from each selective thesis. It will simultaneously fund multiple research teams working independently in various nations around the world. Funding multiple laboratories increases the likelihood that the challenge will bear fruit. This is how we break the quarantine, right? So, respect the man, and thanks for listening. But I hope we don't mind too much a slightly shorter show that I think packs a punch of higher-than-average potency... I should say that I do have an extra one hour plus bonus show in the works, so you'll get that when it's ready and end up with more than the usual paid extra content, so be on the lookout for it. Also, I should say that our joint session is going to be on the 20th this month. Man, this month is flying by. That is Monday, Monday, Monday. So please come and join me for a little digital hang. But I gotta get out of here. I'll catch you next time. Your move, dark sorcerers of the scientific quarantine and promoters of the cold, mechanical, materialist mindset. Your fucking move. Oh no, you see, the world isn't random, it's attached to puppet strings, control over. Everything The nine to five is trying to steal ya Now don't that job seem silly Hello Can you hear me? Or should I play back recordings From some spike agency Wish we were younger And free I'll be thankful when it's all exposed The vast conspiracy There's such a difference Between us And the damn
It's done. 